welcome to Shedding Light Hunting Stories Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the average bloke and their fantastic hunting stories. I'm your host, Travis Williams. You listen to episode 137. Well, the colder temps have finally arrived here in Ohio. Uh, we had a nice cold front this past weekend, and that's kind of wrapping up a little bit right now, but I tell you, it was a fun weekend. Had a great time. I'm going to give you guys a quick rundown of kind of how the hunting season is going uh, so far for me, and then we're going to jump right in. If you can't tell, I use the word bloke, so that might lead you a little bit uh, of the direction that we're headed <laughs> with this interview. I'll get to that in a second, but I uh, really have had a good time uh, getting out in the woods and... Um, it's just been been good. Uh, you guys heard the story about my doe, and after that, uh, I did go on my first West Virginia uh, whitetail hunt, and uh, first out-of-state whitetail hunt, too, and that was on October 15th, and I was supposed to go over with my brother. Um, he ended up, uh, just didn't pan out his work. He had to work extra time and cover for a guy, so... I had that choice, do I go by myself, do I go with a, you know, and we'll just wait, but I bought my tag the night before, and spent the money on it, I thought, you know what, I really want to just go over, my mother-in-law's in town to help my wife with the kids, I've got it planned, it's been on the calendar, I'm going to go. The conditions weren't ideal, um, and that's one of the things I, you kind of weigh, like, do I go whenever it's hot, do I go whenever it's not likely I'm going to see something, um, I chose to go, um, and so this was October 15th, I went in, and check truck cameras, and we actually have a couple pretty uh, nice bucks on camera. I mean, bucks that even if they're in Ohio, I'm gonna consider them. They're they're I mean, they're not like absolute giants or anything like that. Um, but I tell you, I, I I like the looks of it. Kind of got me excited. I went into a spot where I wanted to get to, and I got into deer bedding. I thought, ooh, I'm I don't really want to be in the middle of their bedding right now. And sure enough, I bumped one out of its bed kind of panicked in that moment. I don't always know what I should do. I, I probably should have kept going until I found sign because obviously deer probably aren't going to come back to their beds by nightfall, right? Um, but I, I just, it was thick. It was, leaves were crunchy. And so I just chose to go down a flat and set up. Um, and I saw squirrels, but didn't see anything else. It was a hot, hard hunt. And um, yeah, it was pretty wild. On the way home, I was trying to get home and I got behind semis that were going super slow and then ended up having a wreck happen right in front of me. A drunk guy uh, smashed into three parked cars going through this little town and one of them almost hit me. So that was exciting. I got to be a witness and direct traffic. (laughs) So uh, that was my West Virginia hunt. We will probably go back at some point this season. Uh, Just don't know when. I got to plan that out with my brother. But then the cold front hits. And so uh, I was able to hunt uh, two more times. Uh, I went up to a spot that I've been saving. I have a um, spot uh, that I just called the Amish property, and the Amish property is like this landlocked property, and it's not super big, but it is a great travel corridor. It's where I shot my buck last year. It's where I've had all these encounters with good bucks, and I know of a scrape that is usually really, really good. Um, and I really wanted to hunt it on, this would have been Saturday night, um, but I had a meeting uh, that lasted a long time on Saturday, and I was coming home, and I, it's one of those deals, I just asked my wife, like, hey, I'd really like to go, I'll be hustling to get to the woods, but do you care? And she's like, yeah, actually, we've just had a rough day, can you stay? And so I stayed. I, I did what I should have done, and I'm glad I did it. Um, but I had a feeling, I was like, I bet you those bucks are opening up a scrape right now. And I went back the next night, whenever I was supposed to go, on Sunday night, and sure enough, uh, I, I saw an open scrape right in front of me, right where I thought it would be supposed to have the wind in my face. I climb this tree, I get up in, let loose one of my little 
um, you know, what's it called, milkweed, and the wind is not doing what I thought it was going to do. And at that point, a lot of people will get out of the stand. A lot of people, once they're up in a stand and they find that the wind is not doing what they want or it shifts, they get out. Guys, I have a hard time having that discipline. I don't know about you, but just it takes me forever sometimes to get my stuff set up, get camera gear set up and all that. And I just sometimes don't have that discipline. And maybe that's what I should have done. But in my mind, I still had several spots where I knew a deer could come from and it would be kind of a crosswind for them. And they wouldn't catch my scent until they got right to the scrape. So I thought, that ah, could be okay. Um, I had one deer cruise in below me. Don't know what it was. Have no idea if it was buck or doe. Bunch of squirrels. Um, and then at last light, I heard deer. Thought I heard a grunt in behind me. And just nothing came in. Uh, found out that there was another guy hunting in below me um, on a different property. He started texting me. Must I rattled just very lightly trying to tickle the antlers. And he must have heard it knowing that I was up there. Um, so that was uh, Sunday night. Wasn't planning to go last night, but it was the last night of the cold front. Well, on Sunday night, I had a trail camera out on this other property. And this is one of the new properties where I sent out uh, my 50 letters, and it's one that said yes. And at 6.18 p.m., a real nice buck showed up right at the scrape. This would have been the, the night that I was on the other property hunting the other scrape. And, um, you know, I, I haven't seen a buck on this camera, period. N- not at all. It's been all does. In fact, I almost thought about pulling the camera, um, but... Um, this buck shows up. So I thought, should I hunt it? Should I not hunt it? If I, if I hunt it, I got to find a way to get babysitting and stuff. Cause my wife, she has this thing that she's got to go to from four to eight. And so I, I almost let it go. But then last night my wife said, if you can find a babysitter for the younger three, why don't you take, um, Ansley and, and your foster, the foster daughter, uh, with you. And I thought, okay, this could be fun. And I'll set up a blind. So I went out there, set up a blind and, uh, freshened up the scrape. And we went out and hunted last night. And it wasn't until about 6.30, uh, four does came off the ridge. I uh, got a real pretty video of them silhouetting and coming down over. They were a little leery of the blind. I knew that would probably happen, but they settled down. One of them came right down to the scrape. Um, you know, it was everything was going pretty well, really. Um, they were a little nervous, but they kind of veered off. And then I had a doe coming behind us, and I could tell, I mean, she could definitely, she was scent checking. She knew something wasn't right. Uh, she eventually left, but no buck came in last night. I, I kind of had a feeling, I was like, the chances of this buck that just showed up on a scrape coming back the very next night, I don't know. You know, it's just one of those things where it just eats at you to let a cold front pass. Last night was the last night of it, really. So that's been the season. Um, I have hunted basically, uh, if you're if you're wanting to know a count, um, I'm at six hunts. At this point last year, I was at eight hunts. So I'm doing a little bit better, at, but I think I'm even doing better because two of the hunts that I've been on were in my front yard. So, <laughs> so essentially I've been on like four like hunts that took me away from the house for, I'm trying so hard. My wife and I had a conversation about it yesterday. It's just a challenge sometimes. Like I, you get that in your head, like, man, right now, right now is a good time. Right now is going to be great. And I don't know when I'm going to be able to hunt again. And you, you just start trying to figure out ways to get into the woods and so I'm just trying to balance that. It's hard. It really is. But it is a lot of fun. Uh, I am going to chill it out for a little while until the weather turns good. And, uh, I mean, the rut is just around the corner. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm probably going to throw out some corn at some different spots in front of these cell cameras and just kind of see, you know, just kind of take the temperature, see how long it takes uh, deer to show up, and we'll just kind of play that game. So uh, I am excited to report that the boys in Shedding Light Outdoors, though, are doing pretty well. My buddy Josh Castle, 
Uh, went down to Missouri a few weeks back, struck out, didn't see a deer. He just went back again, took his wife and uh, son with him on the trip, and he shot a buck, and a nice buck on Missouri public hunting ground. And I'm going to have Josh on the show here before too long to tell that story. Same night, within minutes of him shooting that deer, Travis Shire took his trad bow out. Uh, trad bow that he wasn't sure that he was going to be able to pull back again because of having so- shoulder surgery this past uh, winter. Uh, Trav goes out and he shot a really nice eight point uh, that he had been uh, tracking for like the last month. So just a really uh, exciting moment for them. I'm pumped for them and just their opportunities. So um, that's it. That's what's going on right now. And uh, I think it is time, though, to get into our interview. It is kind of mid-October. Some guys call it the law or whatever. So I thought we'd shift gears a little bit today. There's a guy I've been getting to know a little bit be- better from Australia. No, it's not Daniel Mummery. You guys all know Daniel. Uh, has been on the show before. This guy's name is Joel Fulton, and he is from Sydney, Australia. And Joel has a unique um, hobby that he's turned into a career, has to deal with uh, deer antlers and things like that. He also, um, he's kind of gotten into hunting later in life and really picked up this desire to hunt um, just different kinds of animals, exotic animals, some of these crazy hunts. And so he talks today about one particular hunt that he had that was really, really cool to him and just a neat story. So uh, we're going to have fun with this one. I think it's going to be a different change of pace. Maybe give us a little break, a little breather every once in a while. It's good to get away from the whitetails. We'll come back to that next week. But right here is Joel Fulton from Australia. Hey guys, welcome to the show, and I am happy to have on the line with me Joel Fulton from Sydney, Australia. Joel, how is it going, man? It's going well, thanks, Travis. It's uh, yeah, we're uh, we've got a bit of a rainy day here today um, in Sydney, and uh, but it's a stark contrast from the uh, extreme heat we had yesterday. It was thirty uh, odd degrees in our uh, Celsius, which is you know about eighty five degrees your temperature yesterday um but we're down around 10 degrees celsius which i think is yeah around the 50 um for you so uh yeah yeah, start from yesterday to today i tell you it's it's so weird to me um and it shouldn't be weird i know that i mean i I know how the world works but you know you guys are kind of going in like you're in the opposite seasons of us you know so you're on the other side (laughs) of the world and so I talked to Daniel Mummery, who's been on the podcast a few times, and he's always talking about, oh, yeah, you know, we're going into winter. I'm like, oh, man, we're, go- you know, we're going into winter. They're- you guys are going into summer, and weather's yeah. starting to get warmed up. So that's always interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, we're in the middle of spring here. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, we get a bit of rainfall off and on. We get a few uh, really hot days, and then, you know, I've got the fire going in front of me. Uh, at the moment, it's a cooler day today. So, yeah, it spikes up and down around this time of the year a bit. Yeah, man, I tell you, it's, we, uh, we have so many different seasons in Ohio. We have um, summer, and then we have fall, and then we have fake fall, and then we have summer again. Um, <laughs> right now, we are back in this hole. It's like 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's just hot. And I tell you, I have not done a whole lot of – I haven't even wanted really to go hunting just because I'm like, man, there's, there's just not going to be a whole lot of movement. So, yeah. uh, but, but Sunday – cold front is moving in. So, uh, the cold front is on the way and I'm looking forward to like next week. It's supposed to be a lot better. So kind of getting to that mid October where it gets magical. So yeah, man, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do there in Sydney? Uh, so I've got a couple of, uh, couple of irons in the fire, so to speak. I'm a, uh, electrician by trade. Um, I'm 48 years old. 
and uh, I've been a Sparky since I was about 16, left school uh, early and, uh, yeah, been in the trade ever since. I run my own business, um, Rapid Sparks, and, uh, yeah, do electrical contracting mainly in the uh, residential architectural kind of uh, world as well as bits and pieces for your ma and pa, you know, yeah. Mr and Mrs down the road. But um, I mainly specialise with a couple of builders that do uh, residential um, architectural, so more the, the higher end sort of stuff. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one of my um, irons in the fire. And the second one is I make uh, light fittings from deer antlers mm. um, and all thing, anything with antlers actually. Um, so I've been doing that for just over 10 years and that business name is uh, Rapid Effects. And uh, yeah, so chandeliers, candle holders, table lamps, um, door handles, um, cheese knives, bottle openers. um, Anything with an antler. That's awesome, man. Yeah. If you can think it up, then I can probably do it. Oh, that's cool. But what, where did your inspiration come for that? I, you and I, we've chatted before, and I've seen some of these, and I'm going to point guys to your Instagram in a second, but how, sure. how did that come about? How did that idea pop in your head? Yeah, good question, actually. That ties in pretty closely with uh, the story I'm going to tell, um, you know, in uh, uh, very shortly. And uh, I was over in New Zealand um, on a hunting trip, my second hunting trip to New Zealand, and uh, I'd been invited after my first one by a, um, a hunting guide outfitter to, uh, you know, if ever I'm in the area to drop on in. I hadn't actually hunted with him, but I met him and he'd invited me to drop on in and uh, say good day and have a beer if I was ever in the neighbourhood. And uh, I was. And so I did. And uh, he had a very basic triangular um, antler chandelier, or I don't know if you'd call it a chandelier, but an antler light fitting in his um, trophy room come family family room yeah and it was, it was pretty roughly put together in that it had chunky chains holding it up you know it was only three antlers in a triangle and three chains off each corner it had bolts holding it together and I think the cables with the lights on them were like hot glue gunned onto the uh, the top of the antler <laughs> it was pretty archaic in, it, in its um, its design but I could Working with the architects closely, you know, back here in Sydney, um, I'd been involved with lighting design, um, using timber and concrete and a number of different elements. And, uh, yeah, I thought I really want one of those for my place back at home. I had a couple of trophies on the wall at that point. And uh, so, yeah, I came home and I made inquiries to get hold of some antlers from down in Victoria um another state away from us down where uh, Daniel Mummery comes from and uh yeah I I started playing around with them tried to google up how to drill the cables through so I could hide them and uh that wasn't very helpful so I actually came up with my own uh secret method of um encasing the cable um or hiding the cables within the antler um itself so uh yeah, and, and from there, I, I think I, I made one and then people came over my house and commented and said, oh, you should really sell them. They're fantastic. So um, already, you know, having a business up and running, I thought, well, it can't be too hard to get it going. And, uh, yeah, I made a couple of more and found a shop um, near where I was working one day and dropped in and uh, gave them my pitch. And uh, she said, yeah, I'd love to. 
So uh, I gave her a light fitting and she sold it within five days and then said, I'll take two. And so I went back with two more fittings and she sold another one within a week. And uh, that started the ball rolling for me. I started looking around for um, other points of sale and uh, got involved in um, some hunting exhibitions uh, where I would take my, my, I made a stand and my wife and I would go and um, set up the stand and display all of our wares. And I started listening to the, um, the people that were you know, coming through saying, oh, I like that, but it'd be great if it was bigger or you, do you do one that would go over a pool table or do you do one like this or can you do this? And, you know, I just took all that information on board and started um, expanding my range from having four different designs to uh, today, 10 years on, I've done about 40 plus different designs. Mm. And, uh, a lot of those are custom, you know, one off and, uh, and a number of them, you know, I've done them as a custom design for the client, but it's been such a great design that uh, I've included it in my, you know, my readily available, you know, stock that I keep uh, on hand. Oh, yeah. Man, they're just impressive. If you guys, if you want to check these out, go over to rapid underscore effects, rapid underscore effects on Instagram. I'm just kind of combing through, man. And it's just really impressive what you're able to do. Like that's takes a lot of vision. And I mean, it's definitely an artwork, you know, not, not to mention all the electrical. I, I could never figure that part out. But I mean, just they're absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I've got I've got one up on a lot of um, guys that play around with antlers in that, you know, being an electrician. I can certify the uh, the light fitting electrically. Um, yeah, there's a lot of guys. In, I think well, there's a number of guys in Australia that do it as a hobby. And um, but yeah, I've, I've kind of taken it to the next level and uh, made a business out of it. And uh, yeah, starting to make a name for myself with interior designers getting on board. And uh, the hunting um, industry as well is um, is a little bit slower in coming around. In that uh, they don't. I don't think they see the value quite as much in the antler because they see them as something you can just cut off the animal yeah. um, and make something with. But that's a stark contrast to actually what I work with. I will only work with cast or shed, as you call them, um, antlers that have fallen off naturally. Okay. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll travel uh, right across Australia um, to the deer farmers uh, where there's you know, a large amount of them in one location. Uh, that'll make my travel worthwhile and I'll buy them from the farmers and uh, bring them back, clean them up and, uh, and work with them. But again, I, I only work with the ones that have been um, shared naturally, uh, not cut off as part of the farming process um, oh, cool. for the in, uh, in Australia. Oh, that's neat, man. So one of the things I've, I've kind of learned from Daniel, I guess in America, we kind of have this view of Australia, of this really wild place. We have, you know, the movies, we always think of Crocodile Dundee. We always think of that type. Of, it's a stereotype that kind of comes with the land of down under. But I've learned from Daniel that that's definitely not the case. Like sometimes, you know, especially in the bigger cities, people don't get out of the city a whole lot. There's a lot of strict gun laws, things like that. So I'm just curious, Joel, what's your... What's your upbringing? How did you get into hunting? How did that become a passion for you? Yeah, good call. Um, I had uh, no upbringing uh, through my childhood or early teens or even late teens uh, with firearms at all. In fact, it was um, it was kind of a taboo topic um, that was quickly shut down in my family. Uh, in I think there was some great uncle on my father's side that um, 
had passed away from uh, self-inflicted gun shot. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it, it kind of was, you know, you don't have guns unless you really need them. Um, and obviously, you know, farmers need them for, uh, for vermin control and so forth. But, um, you know, living in the city as I did, um, there was no, no need for them. Um, I think I went to school in primary school with, you know, in my, um, before the age of 10, uh, there was a guy there that um, was a Swiss, I think. I think he was from Switzerland, Swiss, something like that. I don't know. And he, um, he was involved with a rifle range and target shooting competition. And that just seemed so extreme uh, for me. There weren't firearms in Australia, uh, particularly through the, the 70s and 80s when I grew up, was, um, it, it just wasn't really talked about. It, 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 was, the under, it was the crime uh, industry, you know, underworld and, uh, and farmers that used firearms. Oh, it wow. wasn't, it, 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 as far as I knew, you know, there was no hunting um, going on. I didn't know anything about hunting. So, uh, yeah, I, the first um, introduction to firearms that I really had uh, was after I was married. So I married a, uh, a preacher's daughter, a uh, missionary daughter. Yeah. And, and uh, they came from the land um, down in Victoria, northern Victoria. And uh, I started visiting down there and we'd go out um, spotlighting at night time. And uh, there was a couple of methods that were used for uh, bringing down the vermin. Uh, you know, there was uh, dogs on the back of the truck that were released and uh, would grab hold of the kangaroo. And then, you know, you'd be able to, you'd count down, or the spotlighter would count down, you know, before your uh, your shot time was up. So it was five, four, three, two, one, or <laughs> five, four, four, three, two, one. And, uh yeah, if you didn't take your shot before one, then uh, it was going to be too dangerous. You could hit the dog. So um, that was quite interesting for me to uh, to witness. Um, yeah, kangaroo hunting, uh, fox hunting, uh, spotlighting um, at night time on uh, on the back of a farmer's ute after I was uh, married. So I think I was married at the age of twenty eight, and uh, yeah, shortly after that, um, I was introduced to you know going out spotlighting and shooting. Um, with a, a local farmer who was um, one of the members of the local church that my father-in-law was a pastor of. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I got my firearms licence at the age of 28, um, and that was the year that my, uh, my first daughter was born in 2001. And I remember uh, the police... It's a very long process to get your firearms license to be able to legally have a firearm in your possession uh, is a very lengthy process in Australia, for, especially for your first firearm. Once you've got your first one, it's, it's a lot easier to uh, obtain um, further firearms, but your first one and to get your actual license is quite a, um, a lot of hoops to jump through, a lot of paperwork, um, a small exam and... Mm. Uh, then just a, basically a waiting game to make sure that you haven't got any premeditated, um, um, you know, in, things that you want to you know, do with the firearm. Right. So it, it's like a 10 to 12 week wait oh, from wow. the time um, apply for your firearms license before you would actually be able to hold your first firearm. That's a long time, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
you know, any any yeah. silly person, but something premeditated, you know, sinister, um, yeah. you know, three months is enough time to uh, get over that or get help. So, <laughs> so like, I want to shoot a guy, but I got ten weeks. I have to, to think about it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's of course if you wanted to do it legally. If you wanted to do it illegally, right, sure right, yeah. Sure back out. <laughs> blue light areas, red light areas that you could pick one up. But uh, I've got no no understanding of where those areas might be or who to contact no. for that. That's good. That's good, man. That's funny. So yeah. you decide you're going to take this, you get your license. And I guess, so you, you, you go with the kangaroos. And I mean, that's so uh, so foreign to me, you know, going out and shooting kangaroos at night. I, it just sounds like, what? It kind of sounds like fun. And I, from what I understand, there's so many kangaroos that, yeah. you know, I guess in our minds and Americans, it's always like, oh, that's the, the national mascot of Australia. They're so cute. But I, to me, it almost sounds like they're like the coyote of Australia. Yeah. Like there's just so many of them and they need to be, you know, kept in check. So that's that's part of the night hunt thing. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of areas uh, where they've gone unchecked and uh, they're really out of hand. They, they do a lot of damage to vehicles. They wait on the side of the road eating the uh the best of the grasses on the side of the road on your country roads, you know, where the wash comes off the road and mm-hmm. uh, they wait until you're about, you know, 15 paces away before they try to jump across in front of you and, you know, wipe your car out. So they do oh, a lot God. of damage to the vehicles and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of roadkill up and down our, um, our eastern coast in particular, mm-hmm. um, kangaroos. Yeah, there's a lot around in, in a lot of areas. Um, actually, where I live, I'm about oh, an hour's drive northwest of the Harbour Bridge, um, which most of you would probably know. And, yeah, yeah I'm on a, a small acreage, got uh, 2.2 acres. Uh, we've been out here for about five years now, coming up to six. And there's a, I think it's a seven-acre property across the road from me, and he's got a dam there. And... They had a massive population of rabbits, which I helped to uh, to get under control, and we haven't really seen them since. There's a couple of diseases that go through um, Australia in kind of waves. There's myxomatosis and uh, the Khaleesi virus, and they kind of wipe out rabbit populations um, mm. in kind of throughout uh, throughout the years. So I put a big dent in the population um, <laughs> shooting, yeah, and then and then I think the the rest of them got wiped out with. Uh, with disease so there's a couple around but not many but mm. uh across damn wall probably once every oh, three to four weeks i'll see a um a wallaby or two sitting mm. on the on the wall uh which is a very close relative to the kangaroo they have a pouch with their joeys in it uh they're usually a lot smaller and um a lot darker in color but uh you know that they from it you know for you guys it'll look exactly the same as a kangaroo gotcha uh, but uh, cool. yes, the you know the odd wallaby. Uh, they they're very solitary animals. The wallabies. Um, they, I think they. I don't know if they have a partner for life, but um, yeah, they, they're very very solitary. They don't mop up uh, like the kangaroos. The kangaroos in a large group is called a mob, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you hundred, hundreds of you know hundreds and hundreds in a mob uh, wow. in any one. So um, that's hard. And they to make it. Yeah, they they. Uh, they do do a massive damage to the uh, the crops and the uh, the fields. So uh, yeah, they need to check. So Joel, let me ask you this: you, you get your 
you get your gun license and all that. And I know there's been a few years since then. And um, you and I, we've, we've kind of chatted a little bit before. And I know that you've had the opportunity to hunt a few places. So what, I guess, whenever you look back at kind of how you got into it, what are those, what stories just kind of rise to the top for you as some of those just being, you know, just some of those favorite moments that you've had since you've started hunting? Okay. Well, I've, I think I've got a lot. Uh, <laughs> Uh, 20 years of 20 years of hunting um, yeah. I wrote I wrote a short list of um, yeah, trophy animals that I've hunted and I've probably got about 15 yeah at least 15 trophy animals um, and trophy hunts that I've been on and that's taken me across the world uh, in in search of rare animals or um, animals that are obviously not available in Australia that have some sort of adventurous appeal um, in their in their taking. So uh, the story I want to tell you about today is my first trip to New Zealand, uh, which was in 2009. Mm. And uh, it started out, so I'd been, I'd had my firearms license for eight years. I started with a 22 um, long arm and that wasn't really doing much for the kangaroos. And so I upped to a 243 caliber. Yeah. And that was a nice uh, rifle. Um, but when I started making inquiries for this New Zealand hunt, uh, I was informed that I needed a 30 caliber uh, rifle and the shots would be, you know, in excess of 200 yards, um, which was well over what I'd ever shot before. So there was going to be a lot of training involved and uh, I needed to um, up my rifle. So, um, you know, back then I, I didn't really know that I'd, I'd be into hunting, you know, for life once I was hooked. And uh, so I traded in that 243 and I bought a, um, a Ticker T3 in 306 stainless mm. steel synthetic. Um, and that's been my pet um, hunting rifle ever since. And only until just this uh, this last week, I've actually uh, just purchased a, a two two three in the uh, Aruga, the same um, model of rifle that I'd had the two four three in uh, previously. So, looking mm. forward to getting that in the uh, in the coming weeks. Yeah. But uh, my my rifle of choice is a thirty oh six, or as you would say, a thirty odd six. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so. I, uh, I had this idea that we, we should go on a family holiday to New Zealand and uh, that was where my phase one of introducing going hunting overseas to my wife kind of started. So it was kind of a little bit, um, a little bit left-handed in that I, I suggested, you know, we should you know, plan a trip with the kids. I think my eldest was 10 and the youngest was oh, seven, two girls. And uh, I thought that would be great to take them over to New Zealand and go skiing um, and uh, enjoy the, you know, the wilderness over there. And my wife said, that's a great idea. And then I thought, well, that's phase one. We've got a holiday, you know, in the, in the thought process. Phase two was to uh, start looking up some hunting guides uh, or uh, outfitters that I could uh, get in touch with. And so I kind of did that on the side. And once I had all my homework together, then I presented it that, you know, if we're going to New Zealand, um, you'd be mad not to actually go for a hunting trip while you're there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it makes sense. You've gone all the way across, you know, across the ocean. 
why wouldn't you? So uh, that was uh, that was how I started, you know, being able to go on holidays and hunt at the same time. <laughs> um, so yeah, once I'd, I'd made the inquiries, we um, I think it was July of two thousand and nine. I, I'd filled out all the paperwork. There's a lot of paperwork to be able to travel with firearms. Um, as you guys, pro- uh, I don't know if you, you guys know, get out of um, America and back into America. Um, I'm sure there's heaps of paperwork, but there certainly is for Australia with our gun laws being so tight. Mm. And uh, New-, New Zealand has a very similar um, gun law uh, system. And... Uh, yeah, lots of paperwork. I had to go through the Department of Defence, uh, my state police, um, customs, and um, our quarantine system. Um, and yeah, there was like seven pieces of paperwork and four different departments that you have to deal with to be able to travel out of Australia and back into Australia with firearms and also with skins. Um, so once I'd done all my homework and got all my paperwork in order, uh, I, uh, I started prepping um, with my fitness. So I was going to be hunting um, Himalayan tar, which is a, a wild mountain goat that was introduced from the Himalayas uh, to New Zealand in about 1905, I think it was, around between 1904 and 1906. Mm. Um, so it was about 100 years on since their, uh, their introduction over there. And they were in, I believe they were introduced as a game uh, species um, to, uh, to New Zealand. And they've just gone rampant in that uh, the government now does massive culling projects uh, from helicopters to keep their numbers down, uh, uh-huh. much, much to the disgust of the operators who run businesses that are, uh, you know, running these guided hunts, um, it makes it very difficult for them. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I'd organised to, uh, to go, but uh, I needed my fitness level to be right up there. The, uh, the mountains over in New Zealand uh, are going to be snowy uh, and tall. And back in here in Australia, you know, in Sydney where I was, there was it, it's like a, you guys call, us, uh, call yourselves flatlanders in some place <laughs> yeah yeah that's what i call my wife yeah yeah it's, it's flat land here in sydney um uh, with very few you know decent hills that you could train on that would get you in in shape for uh you know the conditions of the mountains of new zealand the alps so i was i was going to the south island um on the west coast of new zealand and uh there's massive massive mountain ranges there um so, yeah, I uh, organised my fitness. That was uh, as fit as I could be. Um, I was, well, how old was, how old was I? I was mid-30s, and I think I was at my peak fitness at that point. I'd been doing boot camps. I'd been, every hill that I saw, I'd sprint up it. I started uh, running with a pack on. Um, I was, yeah, I was pumping out push-ups and sit-ups every minute, stretching every night. It was, yeah, a massive fitness regime that I put myself through for about, um, four to six months before I, uh, I got there, uh, which really uh, kept me dead. And uh, I, I yeah, wish I had the motivation now to continue on with that training because, uh, yeah. yeah. 
You wish you could maintain yeah. that. I feel the same way about like so I look back at some of my pictures. I'm like, man, I was in good shape for Colorado in 2016. <laughs> I didn't or 2019. Yeah. I didn't think I was, but. I yeah. look at like the before picture and then the after picture, and the after picture's not so good right now, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know you're feeling. I know you're feeling. I'm uh, yeah, 15 years on now from that, and <laughs> probably 15 kilos more as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the adventure was set. Um, I ended up meeting the uh, meeting my guide at the uh, Christchurch, uh, no, uh, Queenstown Airport. No, oh, cool. Uh, so it's pretty much the middle of um, of New Zealand on the South Island, and uh, we had a sh- about an hour's drive to his accommodation where we stayed the night, met his family, and uh, the next day we were up before dawn at about five thirty, and uh, we had about a three hour drive to get to the helicopter uh, landing pad where we were going to take our, our trip up into the uh, the wilderness. So we were going to be camping. Uh, there was snow, and uh, apart from camping, you know, all this was very, very um, a long way from what I was used to. In that, you know, the massive mountains, the oh, the cold, yeah. the cold from the snow, um, shooting at long distances. I'd been training out to about two hundred yards um, before that, um, before I left. But uh, a lot of these shots would be potentially over 200 yards, which, you know, I wasn't really going to be comfortable with. Um, but, you know, I was just going to have to play it, by, uh, play it by ear and see how I went and just give it my best shot, basically. So we, uh, we left or we were going to leave at the crack of dawn after we had some breakfast. We we're all packed, ready to go. And we looked out and it was snowing. And uh, this made for uh, difficult access to get up and over the mountain. Uh, to the other side where we were going to get a helicopter uh, ride in. So uh, the road was actually shut. Uh, they had, you know, gates up that shut it. And so we had to check the radios to uh, and the, the TV to find out when the, the pass up and over the mountain was going to be open to public traffic. So we didn't get away till midday, uh, which was pretty disappointing because then we didn't arrive at the helipad till 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, which meant by the time we flew in, it was basically just time to glass, you know, the, the mountains around us where we were. Uh, we couldn't really travel far because um, it was July, which is uh, the shortest days of, of the year. Uh, so, yeah, winter being in the southern hemisphere. And, um, uh, yeah, so short days. And, yeah, so we didn't really get to hunt on day one. It was just travel. Um, but day two, I, uh, we woke up early. And uh, set out before dawn uh, after a nice warm coffee and, uh, and breakfast. Mm. And uh, we had about th- uh, one and a half hours walk up through the snow-covered bush uh, until we broke out of the tree line from our camp. So we were camping down at a river level um, and everything is up in the, uh, the tussock, so the grass, the snow grass right up above the tree line. So you've really got to break. You can spot them from down at the creek, the uh, the Himalayan tar. You can spot them from down the bottom, um, but they're usually, you know, a 1,000 yards plus away. Uh, so you need good optics to be able to, to spot them in the uh, in the snow. And uh, once you spot them, then you, you know, make a plan of, of safe passage to get up there through the, the slippery, rocky slopes. Um, so this 
the second day we uh, we headed up through the the snow covered bush, and we just broke out of the uh, into the snow covered tussock at the top, and we spotted a, a young bull. So the uh, the males are bulls, and the uh, the females are nannies, which is uh, different to a, a, a standard goat. You'd call it a billy goat, but um, right. the 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 males are, are bulls, and uh, the females are nannies, and uh, the young ones are kids, and so yeah, we saw a young bull and uh, a, a bunch of nannies with him, and this was the the rut. So it's the mating season. It's the end of the mating season. So um, the uh, the bulls that are usually on their own, and they've got their their harem of girls, um, you know, close at hand. And then you'll see the odd satellite um, bull, you know, that wants to come in and, and challenge for uh, for the mating rights of, of the girls every now and then but usually there's just one uh, dominant bull that you can clearly see apart from the the young teenage you know bulls um in a mob so uh we uh we continued on we f- found another bull that was um uh a good uh, representative uh size so what you're looking for with a, the size is uh over 10 inches uh in horn length uh is you know, a, a representative, and then 13 inches is an excellent trophy. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's some, there's been some that have been coming out more lately that are, you know, 15 and 16 inches, uh, which is really quite rare. But uh, 13 inches is, you know, a, a top, excellent, you know, really good trophy to um, to get your hands on. So um, we. Uh, yeah, we saw one that was representative um, that uh, we could get a shot on. It was probably about 300 yards away. We could get a shot on it. But where these guys live is on the rockiest, most precarious cliff faces um, that is just not habitable and, and trackable by human feet. Mm. So you've really got to look at uh, what you can shoot, where it is. I, I guess it's similar, similar to your, uh, your white mountain goats yeah. in the, uh, you know, um, yeah, similar, similar sort of um, classification in, in their, um, their living areas to, to those. So uh, we spotted this guy, but, you know, if I'd taken a shot, he would have just plummeted off this cliff and we wouldn't have been able to retrieve it. So, you know, that's a, a complete waste. So we didn't uh, didn't go for that. Um, we started heading back to back to camp, and by the end of the day, I think we'd seen about twenty five tar in total, and uh, which I was really pleased with, uh, just seeing these wild animals in their in their element and starting to understand. Like it was day, you know, first day of, of really getting into the hunting, and it was a real great introduction into uh, what lay ahead and the terrain that we were dealing with. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was the end of day, uh, day two. We got back to camp and uh, had a good hearty meal and slept well because I was completely knackered after uh, the climb. Yeah. Uh, but uh, day three, again, we left early. We spotted another um, uh, good, uh, a really good bull this time, um, up over 1,000 yards away. And uh, we spotted it, um, uh, where were we? Yeah, I think we might have spotted it. No, that was the other one. That was the other one, sorry. Um, 
yeah, we spotted this one at about a thousand yards and uh, we climbed about 300, uh, keeping out of sight. They've got really, really good eyesight. So 600 to 700 yards, they can pinpoint any movement on their mountains. They, they know that it's danger. It doesn't walk like a goat. Um, <laughs> they've two predators. So there's no mountain lions or anything like that um, that will take these animals out. Uh, they're free reign uh, in, the, in the ranges there with, with no predators apart from human. So um, they, they get good at picking out, you know, any sort of movement, um, I guess, from that. And, uh, yeah, 600 yards away, if they pick, pick you any sort of movement up, they're gone. Um, so anyway, we, we spotted this guy and from down in the creek. Uh, we climbed about 300 yards and uh, we were able to get up to about 240 yards from him. And uh, we had a clean shot. He was with uh, probably about five or six nannies and a couple of uh, young juveniles there as well. Anyway, we set the pack up and uh, I got a shot away and uh, it, it was a solid hit. But uh, these guys have got really, really thick wool, thick hair. If you look up, uh, Google up Himalayan tar, they are a thick-set, thick-chested animal that, um, you know, is built for these, these snow conditions that really need a good hard hit to, to put them down. Right. So he took off out of sight and, uh, yeah, the, uh, the nannies hung around and uh, my guide said, well, why don't we take a shot at the nanny? You know, we've got to walk up there anyway to go and see if we can retrieve this bull. Let's take a shot at a nanny and, you know, we'll have some, some good meat. I said, all right. So I lined up one of these nannies. Now, I must preface this by saying oh, I'm quite slow at uh, obtaining my sight target. And uh, that comes from having a really lazy, winky eye. So to be able to shut <laughs> one eye, yeah. to be able to shut one eye, it's not a gift of mine. You know, when you play I Spy or, or whatever those – Wink, wink eye murder or something like that when you were a teenager in camp. Um, I was never good at winking. I'd have to do the double blink. And, <laughs> yep, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so trying to shut one eye for a long period of time um, in a, a laying down position um, with rifle facing uphill on a pack, laying over tree roots, um, it's not the most comfortable of positions and then, you know, add in the cold factor of uh, your, your optics fogging up uh, in between, you know, your eye getting lazy and not being able to wink anymore or uh, trying to put one hand over the other eye to uh, give yourself yeah, a patch <laughs> so that yeah. you, can, you can concentrate on looking. Um, yeah, I, I was still very, very green on, uh, on shooting and obtaining my, my sight target um, at this point. So uh, anyway, needless to say, I, I missed on the uh, missed on the nannies, uh, but thankfully I had connected on the uh, the bull tar. So we then had to go and uh, get up there. That's to, just going to be uh, daunting. I mean, to look across to see the mountains, and you got to figure out a way to get over there. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's where having a guide, um, especially on your first trip. So I've been to New Zealand four times now, uh, three times self guided, and this was my first trip. And uh, I really recommend for anybody that's interested in going to New Zealand, um, I would really recommend on their first trip at least get a guide. Um, those mountains uh, really need to be taught to you 
there's yeah. a lot to and uh, I was just like a sponge uh, taking in every bit of information from the guide I could and uh, yeah that that uh, helped me in good stead for uh, further hunts I, I learned a lot on this trip but uh, so we had to go and retrieve this animal which you know was only 240 yards right well that was 240 yards uphill through the rocky crags and and uh, uh, slips of, of um, rock fall um, and mini avalanches and, and so forth. So it took us another, I think, an hour and a half to oh, be man. able to actually climb that 240 yards. And we popped out uh, from behind this rock as we came around the side of this hill. And uh, my guide whispered to me, he's just there, 50 yards. And... Uh, so I threw my pack down on the on the snow and threw out the threw out the bipod, and uh, I got another shot in, and uh, it was a it was a solid hit, and uh, he went down, but uh, he still had a few kicks in him, and uh, my guide looked at the situation, and said he's just about to go off that uh, water frozen waterfall, we've got to get a stop to him before he goes down. And he said, "Put try and get another one in. So I put another third round into him. And uh, I was shooting 150 grain um, out of the 30-06. And, uh, yeah, the third one yeah, put a stop to him. And he was literally only about four or five yards away where he finished up from going off this cliff face that, you know, when it wasn't snow, it would have been a waterfall. And uh, we were actually in a snowshoot, which was – um, basically an, um, an area that had avalanched of snow and uh, it was susceptible to avalanche again. And mm. uh, in that there was, you know, the, the lay of the land, uh, the guide explained to me that we're in a, a pretty precarious position here in that the bull tar is over there, uh, you know, 40 yards away and we've got to cross this um, landslip of of um um snow and uh it could slip um so he's going to go first and we had an exit plan as we crossed it um you know which way are we going to run if if you know boulders <laughs> like coming down and uh yeah it's really living on the edge it was absolutely extreme adventure it was fantastic i i lived loved every minute of it um, and that's why I went. I, I saw it um, written up in a magazine um, prior to uh, to going, which is what gave me the idea of hunting uh, bull tar in New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, these conditions uh, were just something you want to strive for. And um, I think it builds character to be able to go through uh, trials and tribulations and uh, prepare yourself as best you can um, for those. But... Um, in the end, it comes down to your your wit and uh, and your will, I think, yeah. to uh, to overcome uh, some some dangers in times. So uh, we get to the uh, we get to the downed animal, and like I say, it was only four yards away from uh, falling off this cliff. And uh, so we did a really quick uh, photo shoot, uh, and it was snowing at this time as well. So um, awesome photographs with snowflakes, you know, coming down. Uh, in the photo and uh, he's you know, resting precariously on the edge of this cliff face. I had to sit on, <laughs> normally when you take a trophy photo, you sit behind the animal 
well, there was there was no behind the animal. Um, I had to sit in front of the animal uh, because <laughs> I was if I was on the other side. So uh, that was uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. And then uh, my guide caped out the the animal there and then uh, back to the head, um, so I could do a um, a half mount. Uh, sorry, a, um, a shoulder mount, and uh, uh, I watched every you know, every bit of that to learn. And then we really quickly, you know, made exit off the uh, off the side of that mountain, and then uh, had to look for a a, um, a clean, clear passage back down to camp. So that was an absolutely awesome day. Uh, that trophy went uh, ten and ten inches and seven eighths, so nearly eleven inches. Mm. Um, pretty pretty stoked with that. One of the horns had a, a little broken tip, uh, which took it back a little bit on that side, but uh, the long side was nearly eleven inches. So. Um, you know, that's a good representative um, bull. And, uh, I was absolutely pumped and over the moon. Oh, um, man. That sounds like a, like just an incredible hunt. I think anytime you throw snow into the mix, um, for me, yeah. I love hunting in snow. There's just something magical about being out there. It doesn't matter if I got a gun or a bow, just being out and whenever yeah. it's snowing, it's fun being in the mountains. That just sounds like an incredible experience that you got to have there. Yeah. I, I live for the, you know, adventurous you know, journeys, that's um, pushing pushing uh, the boundaries of comfortability um, is is good fun. I think it builds character. Um, yeah. Anyway, so we uh, we slept in on the on the fourth day of uh, so it was a seven day hunt. And uh, on day four, we slept in and uh, Chris, uh, the, the guide, continued to uh, head skin the animal. So uh you know, turn the ears inside out, split the lips, uh, split the nose, uh, you know, got the skull cap completely off. And, uh, you know, he did it in his lap just sitting around the campfire. And uh, I was you know, sitting right opposite him just taking in absolutely every step and asking so many questions. Yeah. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a real awesome learning experience watching that head skinny. I'd never, never seen an animal um, being scunned before. So uh, that was really good, and uh, the best way to learn is, you know, ask questions. I think, and uh, and have hands-on um, experience. So that was uh, awesome. Uh, we, that day finished up, and we moved camp. Um, so we we got a helicopter out that later in that afternoon, and uh, we stayed the night in a, in a motel before we moved on to a second um, camp. So it was a it was actually a, a tar hunt and a chamois hunt. So the chamois is. Um, kind of a genus between a goat and an antelope. Right. Uh, it's got a hook-shaped horn uh, similar to your speed goat um, or your, um, what, do you, what do you call them? The um, Oh, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, pronghorn. Similar yeah. To a prong, yeah, pronghorn. Without, yeah, without the points on the front, it's just got that hook-shaped horn. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was a combination hunt for chamois and tar. And so we were going to move to our second uh, campsite uh, by helicopter um, for the second species uh, from that point on after we'd, um, you know, caked out the animal. So uh, so what's it like, yep. I think, going in, knowing that you have two tags? Is it kind of conflicting? Do you have, are you like, I want to get the tar first and then go after the chamois, or do you have like a preference on that? Yeah, I think my, um, my preference was the Himalayan tar. Yeah. The, uh, the first site that we went to did have uh, a larger population of tar. Um, there was some 
Shemi uh, around. Uh, also, also known as chamois, if uh, you pronounce it like that. But uh, here in Australia, I think we pronounce it shemi. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so it, it was a combination. Each each location had um, varying um, numbers of each species. So the first site that we went to was mainly known for its tar population, with a few shemi. And uh, the second site we were going to was uh, predominantly going to be for chamois, but there were a few tar. And uh, as it turned out, we, uh, we ended up staying the night in a motel um, after we got uh, taken out to dry our clothes out. And uh, we didn't really have time to get into uh, the site we were going to because it was late in the afternoon and it was all snow where we were meant to be landing. So the pilot said, look, I'll pick you up in the morning and uh, we'll fly you out to a different um, a different site <clears throat> and uh, we'll camp down at the creek uh, rather than up on the snow, in the snow. So uh, it was a lot more comfortable, but uh, we woke up on that next day and there was frozen condensation on the inside of our tent. So we had separate tents and, yeah, there was frozen droplets on the inside of the tent, oh, which is man. unusual, I would have thought that uh, it would freeze your, uh, your condensation, but that's how cold it was. Um, I think in Celsius it was minus five or minus six, which is about 20 degrees for you guys. That's cold. So, yeah, on, on the cooler side of things. <laughs> uh, very, very stark contrast to you know, where I come from in Sydney. We have the odd day where it might get down to two or three degrees in winter. Uh, in Sydney, and uh, which is, oh, where's my little chart? Uh, which is around the, you know, 35 for you is our lowest, and our hottest is about 105 uh, Fahrenheit in, in summer. So very, oh, very wow. different, you know, over in New Zealand in these mountains, especially in winter for what I was used to. Um, yeah, this next day we uh, we got in the chopper and uh, got dropped off down at the, down at the creek. We set up camp and, uh, yeah, we frozen condensation on the inside of the tent. We woke up. Uh, all these starts are in the dark and we came back in the dark as well. So you're walking up uh, frozen creeks uh, by torchlight. So the rocks are really slippery because the, the, the slow-moving creek water has frozen overnight. And uh, so you're stepping on icy rocks um, so you've really got to put your boot in between the crevices of the, of the rocks so you get a good foothold. You don't ever want to stand on the top of, a, of one of these rocks, that's for sure, until the sunlight comes up and melts the, the, uh, the ice. So uh, we had about a three-hour climb up this, uh, up this mountain, and uh, we're actually targeting a um, – uh, on this particular day, we'd, the day before, sorry, before we'd um, – We'd gone to bed. We'd spotted uh, another tar way up over a thousand meters, a uh, thousand yards high, and uh, my guide indicated, looking through the spotting scope, that that was a really, really good um, bull tar. It was better than the one I had in the bag, um, but it was completely up to me. I only had two days of hunting left, and it was completely up to me. We could uh, climb for this um, this bigger bull tar. And, uh, and try and get a drop on this guy, or we could use the day to, you know, look for the chamois 
which is more likely up the creeks. So you, you walk along the main river system and you'd look up the creeks, uh, the side creeks, and you're more likely to see the chamois up those creeks there. Um, but we'd seen this bull tar the night before and uh, they usually don't move very far overnight. They'll bed down on last light and they'll stay there until mid-morning uh, the next day. And um, that was the case. So we, we spotted him again first thing in the morning as we were climbing. And uh, three hours later, we're about 70 yards away from him. And we saw this, this mob that was his mob all single file running along the, walking along the edge of this um, rock face. And there were these two really big boulders um, that we were looking at. And these um, tar would come up the hill and they would walk past this opening in these two boulders. And that was our kind of spotting area where we could judge whether it was the right one or the, or the wrong one. That was the first and only spot we could really see these uh, these guys filing through. And uh, it was the habit of the of the bull tar to be last in the mob. So um, Chris, my guide, was was watching intently and we were set up with a, a good sight view of this this opening. And as soon as this bull tar would um, would you know show his face in this opening, he'd hopefully stop because he'd been in cover, and usually the first sign of you know um, uh, where they can look over their domain, they will stop and they'll survey their, their area. And uh, he did just that. He stopped and uh, I got around right through the, uh, just behind the shoulder into his chest mm. and toppled straight off and he fell down about oh, six or eight yards into a, a big pile of snow. So it was an awesome landing and uh, easy retrieval. I um, He was still still breathing when I, uh, I got over to him but uh, and, and I put a finishing shot in and, uh, and it was all done and dusted. But before that, we gave him some time and uh, at the shot, all of his harem of, of girls and all the young, young kids all stood around and uh, they were a little bit dumbfounded and bewildered that they, their, um, their main guy, uh, their boss guy, had, you know, had just fallen over and they didn't know what was going on. So they all milled around and, and kind of hung around and didn't go anywhere. So we watched them intently for about 15 or 20 minutes. And it was just an awesome sight to see them interacting. And uh, very soon after, um, you know, the big guy was taken off the scene that a young teenage bull started um, rounding up the girls and uh, their tongue starts flaring and flickering around uh, you know, as they're smelling the uh, smelling the air for for females that are in season, and uh, he started doing just that, and he rounded up his girls and uh, and started taking them off up up the hill, mm-hmm. and uh, the new boss is in town, kind of thing, <laughs> and uh, we had the slipped, old one slipped in on him, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And while we're while we're looking at this, we also noticed way up on a um on a, a peak was another really good representative bull, um, way bigger than the one that had just rounded up these these girls, was looking down at the whole situation and uh, we were quietly thinking, uh, he's going to come on down and knock this guy out and uh, and take over this new harem for sure. So uh, it was just really interesting to watch the interaction of these animals, you know, given the opportunity. And 
and see that before we we went up to to see my animal that I'd uh, I'd put down. But he ended up the one that I put down was way bigger. He was thirteen inches, mm. and uh, that was absolutely fantastic. We he was aged at ten years, so on their horns uh, they have little growth rings, and uh, you can actually count the the ridges on their horns for their age. And uh, this guy went uh, ten years old, which is pretty old for uh, for a uh, a bull tar up in the mountains. There, <clears throat> that's a, a good you know, mature age animal to, uh, to take out. So we were pretty pleased with that. Um, yeah, so we took that, we, uh, we caked that out after a bunch of photos. It was absolutely picturesque uh, location with absolutely beautiful blue sky, white snow, grey rocks, you know, in the, uh, in the trophy photos. It just couldn't have been framed better. Um, and we ate well that night. We, we got him back down <laughs> and uh, we had 10-year-old bull tar back straps, uh, lightly seared with salt and pepper and olive oil, um, and they were absolutely delicious. Of um, Yeah, it's one of my favourite meats to, uh, to have as Himalayan tar, but, yeah, it's quite the rarity. It's not like you head down the shop and, you know, pick out a Himalayan tar off the, off the freezer aisle. Um, yeah, they're uh, they're not really not really available here, so uh, yeah, that was pretty awesome. Um, but uh, day seven was the last day of the of the paid hunt, so we woke up. We at um, before dawn, we packed up camp, and we only had till twelve thirty, um, just after lunch, until the chopper was uh, due to come in and pick us up. And uh, so at this stage, by the time we'd packed up, we had about four hours of uh, of hunting so it was um yeah we had about four hours of hunting so chris said to me uh look we got a couple of options today we can you know climb and climb and capture um you know spot from the bottom and try and capture something or uh, we can sneak up the creeks and um creep up the creeks and see what we can find and i, I said well let's try and uh, let's see what we can see and then make a plan from there. So we started walking along the, the bottom creek or the, the river line and looking up the uh, the side creeks and we spotted two chamois um, and they were, you know, an hour and a half, you know, at least climb away from us to get up there. So Chris said, what do you want to do? We can keep on you know, looking for the something closer or we can yeah, climb and capture. And I said, oh, definitely let's climb and capture. Like, if, if the, you can see one, then you can potentially shoot it. So, you know, if you don't, if you keep walking, we might not see anything. So let's go for what we've seen. And uh, that's just what we did. So we absolutely smashed these hills, put everything into it. It was the last day, so don't leave anything in the tank. And uh, we got to about 200 yards away from these two um, chamois. And... After you know seven days of climbing and looking through optics and uh, laying down in uncomfortable positions, my winky eye just started going lazy on me. <laughs> and it let me down big time on these bucks. So the, the chamois uh, male is called a buck, um, and uh, yeah, it let me down. I got two shots away, and they were pretty hasty shots. In that uh, you know we we're on the clock. We had to get back before the chopper turned up. And uh, 
you know, it was a decent hike down, especially if I'd shot something. We still had to get to it and then retrieve it, skin it, um, and then get off the mountain back down to the creek uh, river system for the chopper. So there was, there was quite a lot of pressure and, uh, and basically I screwed it up. And uh, <laughs> we thought one of them sounded like a hit, um, which meant we had to climb. So we absolutely, you know, tore ourselves in two trying to get up there. And when we got up there, the the view of what you're looking at from the bottom is very different from what you're looking at when you're in the in the top of it. And it was this really thick brush that was snow covered, and it looked like tussock from the bottom where we were shooting from, and uh, but it was just really thick bush and uh there was no blood trail um you know we searched for about 20 minutes to half an hour and we had to call it and say it's a miss so uh with that we headed back down and uh yeah we made it down in about 30 minutes flat we were just absolutely jumping you know from <laughs> and uh yeah, had a well-earned beer while we waited for the chopper for the last 20 minutes. And that was the end of my hunt. But I had two Himalayan tar in the bag. Oh, man. Basically, it just added fuel to my fire. My, my wife originally thought that, yes, all right, you can do this hunt. That'll get it out of your system. Well, that really just added fuel to my fire. And, uh, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I called this story, fuel to the fire. So oh, That's awesome. My... Uh... My wife says the same thing. She's like, if you ever shoot an elk, you know, I, I go out uh, to Colorado every three years. She's like, if you ever shoot an elk, is that going to make it so that you don't want to hunt one? And I, I hate to tell her, it's probably just going to make me want to do it even more. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, there's always another species. There's always a bigger, a bigger size, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's sure. I, I, it, it, um, it did start the the uh, fascination with me, you know, hunting in the hills of New Zealand. Like I say, that, uh, that was my first of four trips uh, to New Zealand hunting um, tar and chamois. And, yeah, um, yeah it was uh, absolutely fantastic experience to, um, to get that um, understanding of the animals from the guide and uh, learn the landscape and, um, yeah, know what it takes in fitness to be able to, uh, manage them, uh, yeah. manage the. So yeah, it was yeah absolute cracker time. I'd, oh, it's um, awesome, man! I think about what you just said there. Fuel the fire. That kind of I like that title. That's that's uh, probably what I'll end up titling this thing. You know, you just you you experience some amazing things in your life, and instead of you being like, okay, well, I'm done with that, it, it just makes you want to experience that all the more. Like you catch that adrenaline from shooting a buck or whatever it is. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people do, but you, you, you do it once and you're like, man, that was so awesome. And you just, so you chase that experience again. Like that's, that's what I'm doing right now. Like I'm trying to chase that experience of having a big buck come in and shoot one this yeah. season. You know, you, you want those moments to come back because they're so incredible. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I, I can't wait to, uh, to get back our restrictions in Australia. <clears throat> pardon me, have been uh, really tight for the last 18 months plus. Um, Sydney only just uh, two days ago came out of 106 days or 110 days of lockdown. Oh my um, and all of our retail shops have been shut for the 
last three months. Um, and so I went out to, this morning for a, uh, a cafe, a, an outdoor cafe meal with my family, um, which is one of my favourite things to do is eat out for breakfast. And uh, we did that this morning. And, uh, yeah, it, it's just amazing that we can – I'm really looking forward to being able to travel again and yeah. borders to be open. Um, at the moment, our, our state borders are still shut. Um, it's the first stage of opening our country back up. Um, we're the first state to actually come out of a lockdown, you know, like this. And uh, Victoria is still locked down. Um, they've been in their lockdown for even longer than us. And, uh, yeah, I just can't wait to be able to travel. Uh, we can't go to regional areas, so we've pretty much got a 100-kilometre radius um, that we can go if we have a genuine reason to go, and that would be for work. Um, and uh, But previously it was only a 5-kilometre radius, which is oh, 5 kilometres in miles is only about 3 miles. Um, yeah. Part of your work is collecting antlers, so I, I really think that you could probably sell this. You know, like, hey, I'm I'm out in the mountains looking for antlers. You know, that's part of my job. I don't, I don't know if that would work for you or not. Yeah, yeah, I I did think about that. Like even trans <laughs> transporting a uh, a light fitting interstate, um, you know, could have been a fair excuse. But uh, if I got caught, you know, somewhere I wasn't meant to be, then oh, yeah. uh, there was like five thousand dollar fines on the spot. Um, and, uh, and then home isolation for two weeks. Um, yeah, it, it's just not worth the risk. Yeah. I, uh, I get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was very tempting to, you know, kind of half have a genuine reason to get away. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, and also, with my travels to, to pick up the antlers, I need to go to, um, multiple locations, uh, which makes it very hard to get the paperwork to, um, you know, go from here to there to there and stay in motel accommodation across two states. Um, yeah, it just wouldn't work. So just got to wait patiently now. Joel, let me ask you this as we kind of wrap things up. Um, you've been able to experience a lot of just kind of neat experience hunts. And I think a lot of guys out there, you know, there's some guys that are just like satisfied hunting their own public or their own private land or public land around them. But it seems like you've taken the opportunities as you've been able to afford them to go on some of these kind of neater, you know, bigger hunts. What, what advice would you give to a person going into one of those hunts? Um, I think there's guys out there, maybe they've been saving their money. They want to go on like a guided trip someplace and experience something neat. Um, mm -hmm. Is there just any kind of base level advice that you'd give to a guy that's looking to do something like that? Um. Yeah, look for recommendations on the outfitter. <clears throat> um, trophy photographs from Instagram and Facebook, um, you know, different angles of the camera can really accentuate, um, you know, the length of horns, antlers, tusks, um, things like that, and uh, things can get talked up a lot. But uh, if you, yes, try and get on to um, people that have actually hunted with them. I I've heard... Yeah, drama stories of people hunting over in Alaska or Canada and uh, they've been promised great numbers of moose or caribou or whatever it is and um, there just hasn't been. Um, so, yeah, I think really do your homework um, would be my, my best advice and, yeah, just try and learn 
glean as much information from the professional that you, you end up going with as you can while you're there. Um, yeah, I, I, I try and I, I'm a kind of guy that really questions everything that's being done. If I'm getting work done on my house by a tradesman, I'm, I'm always asking why they're using a particular tool or doing something a particular way. And that I think helps round you with knowledge all round and mm. um, you can take that on. So I think, yeah, just do your homework on, on the outfitter and yeah. look for recommendations. And um, once you're there, uh, try and glean as much information you can about that species and everything they know about their area that they're working with. Um, yeah, that would be probably my um, advice. Yeah, that's good, man. That's solid. I think it's important. I think there's a lot of guys that enjoy that sort of thing and want to do that. And I would, you know, you can't, you look at reviews, there's always going to be maybe one or two like really bad reviews, but as a whole, what, what are people saying about their experience and, and what did they, they enjoy? What did they take away? You know, that's, that's huge. And yeah, I mean, if you're going absolutely. to spend, if you're going to spend money on a hunt like that, I think that's, that's huge to be able to, to kind of go in with some confidence. So, yeah. I think some of the guides as well have um, repeat clientele and uh, you start seeing, you know, the same person in the photograph with different species over multiple years. I think that really speaks um, volumes of the outfitter Um, and the potential relationship that you can build with that, that outfitter as well. And uh, I think you've got to be, your personalities have got to be a good fit as well. Um, you know, some people hunt in a different style to you, and I think you need to do your homework to find out if that style of hunting is uh, is your style that you can you can work with as well. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, well, Joel, man, I appreciate you coming on. That sounds like uh, just a lot of fun being able to be in New Zealand, be in the mountains, and chase those tar and experience those things that you've got to experience. I really appreciate you coming on the show, making some time tonight, man, to come on over and uh, share those stories. No dramas. I've got plenty more of, yeah, I've got African stories. I've got uh, um, UK stories from the England and, uh, yeah, other states in, in Australia I've been to. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a few uh, more stories up my sleeve, so I'd love to uh, come back and tell you a bit about them and the circumstances, how they came about. Absolutely, man. I'll keep you on standby. I've, I've uh, seen your wall of fame, and you do you have had some really cool experiences, so... definitely definitely man that's awesome cool well joel thank you so much for your time man i'm going to go ahead and wrap things up tonight but i want to thank you for coming on and sharing your experiences and i hope that you have a great uh spring going into summer for you guys yeah yeah awesome thanks so much for the chat trav really appreciate it really enjoyed getting to know joel over the last few weeks and uh having him on the show and I tell you what, his antler business where he makes the chandeliers is just awesome. Go check that out. I'll drop a link below for you guys to check into that. And uh, just some neat stories. I mean, just stuff that I'm not used to. I love hearing guys from different countries. Uh, having a guy from Australia back on. I love the accent. And Joel's a good guy. Um, just super kind and genuine. And uh, just neat some of the opportunities that he's had. He's shown me his wall. And uh, he loves going on different places, going on different trips. And just pretty neat. Um, the verse kind of, this didn't pop in my head. I had to look this up because I was just thinking about some different things. And this verse, it comes from Job 35, uh, verse, uh, we'll do verse 10 and 11. 
It says, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than he teaches the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds in the sky. Uh, kind of an interesting little thought there. You know, you think about any animal that we go after. Right now, I am like dedicating myself to the study of white-tailed deer. Like I am trying so hard this year to understand why they're going to go to a certain spot when they go there, rather than just trying to pick a location where I've seen deer before at random, um, rather than just throwing out a corn pile. I'm trying to understand their behaviors and manipulate that, obviously, so that I can get one. You know, that's that's part of studying the animals. You're trying to understand them. And you think about Joel going to these different places. It's it's You're trying to understand how do these creatures behave? What do they do? I mean, I remember going on my 2016 hunt uh, to go hunt elk, and I was just kind of banking on my cousin's expertise. I didn't really do much research myself. And I look back, I was like, I don't know that I was anywhere close like to an elk. I mean, I saw some out in front of me at one point, but but as far as getting one or, or knowing why they were going to be where, they, I had no clue. It was just a random shot in the dark looking back now. Um, and it was frustrating. And I think about, you know, studying, trying to study the animals. But you look at this verse, it says, No one says, where is God my maker who gives songs tonight, who teaches us more than he teaches the beast of the earth. You think about this, God has, these animals, they have so much that they know, and there's so much that their their instincts they rely on, but God teaches us more than he teaches the animals. And you think about that, like how hard it is to kill a mature animal or kill an, an animal that, um, you know, lives high in the mountains like Joel was going after or whatever it is. Um, God's given us more knowledge than that. Uh, he's given us more things that we can understand. Um and I think that that is such a huge and like really cool thing. I, I hear people sometimes say, oh, we're just animals. I think that's almost offensive. God has made us, yes, we are in, in our prime nature. I get that. And, and we are mammals or whatever. But, but God's breathed into us the breath of life, and he has made us like him. And we're not fully him, but being like him, we have a mind that can grow, that can learn. And what's cool is God is willing to be our teacher. Um, I got to admit that sometimes I'm not a great student. <laughs> sometimes I just go in random and kind of hope I figure it out, uh, like I did on my 2016 hunt in life. I just like get into situations and I just make bad choices. Um, but then there's moments where I'm like, you know what? I, I open myself up to God's word, uh, things that maybe a preacher has to tell me. I'll try and instead of listening to hunting podcasts all the time, I'll try and throw in some other podcasts that maybe have like a spiritual tone to them or something like that that will just challenge me a little bit. Um, because I want God to teach me. Like, who wouldn't want the guy who knows all things and made all things to be their teacher? You know, you always think about people who choose like a university. Part of them choosing a university is, does it have credibility? Does it have teachers there that know what they're talking about? We have a God who wants to teach us, to teach us about him, to teach us about life, to teach us things. And, and we have to be willing, though, I think, to open ourselves up to that. Uh, it's not just going to pop in our heads automatically. We have to sit down at his feet and dedicate time to studying that. Um, so just some thoughts for you today. Think about ways in which maybe you're opening yourself up to that. If this podcast is the only dose of uh, Bible verses or anything that you get, you might want to go another step. You know, If you're not going to church, there's a place where you can hear something. Maybe you don't like the preacher necessarily. Uh, maybe they're not the most dynamic. Pick out one or two things that they say. Um, pick out just a couple things or a verse or two, and, and you study it. You dig up. Allow, allow God to teach you. Become teachable. Um, 
So just a thought for you to consider. Thanks for us to go forward. I really hope that you guys are doing well, that wherever you are, whether you're from Australia and uh, Joel's turned you on to this podcast, or if you're here in the U.S. and you're chasing muleys, elk, whitetails, whatever it is, ducks are coming up, I think. Um, just have a good time. Make sure you're keeping the right things in perspective. Enjoy it. Be safe. And until next week, remember to shed the light.